Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 151, March 2022. This month, our guest is KJ Sanchez, a theater maker slash director slash producer slash documentary maker slash assistant professor and head of playwriting and directing who also runs the MFA in theater at University of Texas, Austin. I read an essay about her work in HowlRound I was intrigued by her statements about using interviews and historical research to glean material for her plays, which seemed to cover a multitude of engrossing subjects. And I have to confess to a personal reason, having done onstage, offstage, and spoken to over 160 interviewees in the course of nine plus years, I'm always interested in what techniques and caveats other interviewers use to source organic responses without altering or biasing the stream of information. You do documentary theater, which is a whole separate section of theater because it's reportage, at least to me. And you're dealing with real people and facts are important more, you know, as, as well as story. And that may seem like nitpicking, but I think a lot of times when playwrights just create stories, we don't spend so much time in research. And anybody who's done historical plays knows that a lot of it is research. But you talk to real people and you create artwork out of real life situations. Um, So let me ask you about your prep because I want to start with the research, because I'm totally a research geek when it comes to this. And there's a subject you're thinking about doing. So when you go into an interview, and this is something I want to talk about also between the objectivity, uh, the, 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 the takers and the amplifiers and all that, the whole technique, because that's fascinating. How do you prep for something like this? Uh, how do you keep objectivity when you're dealing with somebody whose answers and emotions and experiences might push and pull you in different ways to alter your interview technique. Right. Well, in order to answer that, let me just back up for a moment to talk about genre, because how I interview absolutely depends on where on the spectrum of plays about real people and real events, that particular project lives. So yes, one term for what I do is documentary playmaking, but I work within a larger umbrella, which doesn't have an easy name. I, uh, I call it chronicling our time, but you know, it's making plays about real things and real people. And on one end of that spectrum, you have investigative theater, which is, um, like the work of the civilians. Um, And I would say perhaps Tectonic Theater Company lives there where there's a question or there's an event that is being investigated. And then with, particularly with the civilians and my work falls sometimes at this far Mm -hmm. left end of the spectrum in that you're looking at a moment in time asking questions about it, but then the play you make based off of that might have fictive sections or might all be fiction as a fictional reflection of that. And then on the other very far end of that same spectrum under this big umbrella is um, verbatim theater and documentary theater. And so that is straight up reportage. Although um, nothing can be assumed to be completely subjective and simple 
journalism because everything is influenced by the frame that you put around it. Everything is influenced by what you choose to put in the play and what you don't put in the play and the chronology with which you tell the story. So there's still writing that happens. So I think it's a little bit of a myth to think that anything is actually taking a slice of life and putting it on stage by the very act of putting it on stage. We're fictionalizing it to some degree or other. Um, but I do try my particular interest. I'm fascinated with this genre because I fell in love with real things and real people because, you know, as the saying goes, you can't make this shit up. <laughs> and what really happens in the world is so fascinating and complex and complicated and maddening and shocking and imaginative mm -hmm. that all you need to do is take time to listen and you will find an incredible story to share with others. And so each project has had it's a different place in that spectrum from investigative theater to verbatim theater. It all depends on the subject. So for example, um, I co-wrote Reentry with Emily Ackerman and that play is very, very much in the verbatim documentary theater camp. Um, mm -hmm. And what that means is 98% of the dialogue came from the transcriptions of our interviews. Gotcha. And we didn't change the interviewee's intent in any way, shape or form um, to tell the story, we told the story as it was unfolding. We spent time with a handful of Marines returning from Iraq and Afghanistan who had been on multiple combat deployments. And over the course of two years, things happened in their life. And when they happened, that's when they went into the play. So um, I think it was the closest to really capturing um, and the closest to what you were referring to as reportage um, that I've gotten. Um, and then uh, other times I will interview people depending on, uh, on, um, on the subject. So for example, uh, recently uh, I've been making work about the history of King Records, which was a record label in the 50s in um, Cincinnati. I've made two plays, two musicals out of them so far, right. and I hope to make a third. Um, and so I did a lot of research and I interviewed people um, and I put those, so I interviewed one particular drummer, Philip Paul, who um, just recently passed away, may he rest in peace. Um, but his, the transcriptions from my interviews with him were the core of that play called Cincinnati King. But then there were other characters that I wanted to represent in the play that were no longer with us. And so uh, I had to invent a world in which their stories could come into the play. And so the, what I invented was that we're being visited by the ghosts of these two people. But their dialogue came from interviews with their family members, from um, recordings of, of the real people being interviewed, from articles. So getting back to your question about research, um, and was it, how do I, now I've given so much backstory, I have forgotten the specificity of your a, question. It was a very long question, and I apologize for that. I kept looking at my notes going, oh, there's so much I want to talk to you about. How do I frame this? <laughs> um, let's, all right. You started talking about King Records. What drew you to that subject in the first place? Because I'm, it's, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one was a gimme. That was a gift. 
Um, Blake Robeson had talked, taken over as artistic director of Cincinnati Playhouse mm -hmm. and um, wanted to use the development of a play as a way of getting to know his communities and his neighbors and his city. And so he asked his board and associates with the theater, what is a story that is uniquely Cincinnati? And they all said King Records. And so he called me. Um, he had, as artistic director of Roundabout Theater, pre um, had presented reentry. And so he knew that this was work that I did. And so he called me and said, would you be interested in a commission to conduct interviews and make something about King Records? And as the minute that I started listening to the music and researching it, I completely fell head over heels uh, into that world. It was so fascinating. Um, one, because there were, there were musicians that were still alive in their 80s and 90s who had played on King Records albums, so I could actually talk to the people that made the work. Mm -hmm. um, there were just great stories about the founder. Sid Nathan was just like such a character, like how could you not put him into a play? And there were a lot. And then I was so compelled by the story of Little Lee John, who was the first one to sing the song Fever that everybody thinks um, uh, was. Um, oh, man, COVID fog is taking over my brain right now. Uh, who, who, who do you think of when you think of the song Fever? Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, what a lovely way to burn. Yes. Um, you give me fever, fever. I've said this person's. I've been I've been writing this play for seven years, and why can I not think of anyway? So, Little Willie John was this yeah. unknown to us at our time recording artist, um, and uh, but incredibly popular when he was alive and when he was recording songs. But because it was before the advent of video recording of performances, there isn't a lot of material left except for his recordings. Yeah. And uh, an incredible artist who died at the age of 30 in prison, sent to prison um, for a murder that was clearly self-defense. Um, so anyway, I became just absolutely fascinated. And that's, that's how all of this works is really... Um, I'm either given or most often stumble upon a question or an idea. And, um, and once I have that defining question, then everything follows after that. So with King Records, my question was, what is the transaction rate between, and, and what kind of artist, here's the real question. What, that question was, what kind of artist do I want to be? Do I want to be, the steadfast studio musician like Philip Hall, who mm -hmm. does his job well in and out every day, having a long career, still playing music at the age of 93, mm -hmm. but not getting this huge celebrity that big stars get. Or the um, uh, Sid Nathan, who was um, just a force of personality, the micromanager, the person who pushes the hill, the, the rock up the hill right. um, and dies of an early age from stress because you have to fight so hard to make something happen. Or the brilliant artist, Little Willie John, who's on this planet for a brief period of time, but everything he made was a spectacular shining star. Gotcha. And I think yeah. 
I think that those are three categories we can look at a lot of different artists in. And, and so my writing these plays about King Records is my way of working through my questions, my loves, my concerns, my epiphanies, my regrets all around being an artist. Um, another play that I made about football was a very simple question, which was just what does American football give us and what does it take away and is it worth it? I would or love with reentry, it was that question. Yes, <laughs> and um, and with reentry, it was how do you go from combat to standing in line at the grocery store? And um, yeah, I never find an answer. Actually, the the investigation just leads to more questions, and I I will have done my job right if right. the audience leaves with more questions. And I think that's the difference between what I do and journalism is um, I think I read the newspaper looking for answers uh -huh. and I write plays because I have questions and I want to, I want to use the research and the playmaking process to find my way through those questions because I am assuming that if I have these questions, other people do too. And my hope is to just start the conversation and not offer any answers. Because if I offer any answers, then the play becomes um, uh, propaganda. Yeah. Adds a prop theater. Yeah. It, it, it becomes um, a lecture almost. It's... Exactly. Yeah. Soapbox. Answers, I've always had problems with answers because the concept of answers. Yeah. Because life itself, once you get to a certain point and you start paying attention, you start realizing how things around you move and how the world moves and how you move within that world, answers seem illusory and almost dangerous. And because mm -hmm. the illusion is that you will find something that will satisfy and solve. Yeah. And life is not like that. Right. And it's dangerous because you learn to like, and I'm going to say this, so, so much of America has been taught that you can find answers and you will find closure and you will find satisfaction. And I think a lot of our frustration comes from the fact that that doesn't pan out most of the time. Life is too complicated. Um, mm -hmm. Theater for me is something to make the audience think, to introduce them to viewpoints, to introduce them to things strange to their particular world. Make them think. Okay, um, I think a lot of movies are meant to just keep you happy for two hours and 15 minutes and have you walk out going, well, that was fun. What's next? Um, good theater for me is, okay, I think I need to think about this just a little bit because all of a sudden my status quo has just been a little bit upset. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so as the playwright, or yes, as... as playwright or constructor of these projects, I guess. Um, when you walk into something, I, I would assume, and I could very easily be wrong, that you have an idea about what it is you want to come out with. Um, a vague idea, probably at best. And yeah, that, I don't. It's the opposite. Okay. All right. Is um, I... It, I never get good material if I know, if I go fishing. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Um, I'll, I will um, pick a subject because I am interested in that person. Like when I decide who I should interview, yes, it's either somebody who is just an incredible person. And I just trust that person is so interesting. They're going to give me good material. Mm -hmm. It's, it's someone who's a stakeholder in that story. Yeah. Um, uh, or it's somebody who is going to lead me to the right interview where I will find the right material that goes into the play. Okay. Um, but if I'm, you know, for instance, with re-entry, even though my personal politics, I was particularly at that time, I was so opposed to the wars in um, Iraq and Afghanistan and went to every anti-war protest I could find. Right. Um, but I, it would have been deadly to the playmaking process if I had gone into those interviews looking to hear combat mm -hmm. veterans talking about how bad combat is. Right. I had to set aside my own agenda. I had to set aside all of my own politics. And I had to simply um, listen to what serving in war means for them. Okay. And so I couldn't go in fishing for anything. I simply had to start with, and, and what I start with is, you know, there's a couple of rules about interviews and asking questions, which I know, you know, you're a, a great interviewer. So I think you already know these things. Um, the, and, and much of the audience listening probably knows too, but my job is to say obvious things sometimes maybe. Um, but <laughs> the things that lead to terrible answers yeah. are um, uh, any kind of question that has to do with opinion. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you feel about war? Um, anything that leads to a soapbox answer. Um, so it's all, and, and, and anything that is answered with a yes or a no. So instead of saying, what do you, instead of asking, what do you feel about war? I want to focus on a specific thing, really super specific. And those are the questions that will lead us lead the interviewee down a tangential path. And the tangents is where all of the greatest material comes from. So for example, if I am interviewing a combat veteran, first question I might ask is, tell me about the specific moment when you return from deployment. Um, where were you? Who met you when you arrived? What did you do that night? Right. And so if they might say, my wife met me and we got home and all of our neighbors were there with a, with a, they had a barbecue for me when I arrived, then I asked specific things about that barbecue. What was cooked? Who, um, um, who was there? What did you eat? Tell me. And all I have to really say is tell me about it right. and tell me more. And then I might find that say, well, when you come back from combat, the last thing you want to smell is the smell of burning flesh. And so a barbecue where all of these meats are being cooked triggers mm -hmm. me back to a moment in war when I experience, or um, 
it was 4th of July and there were fireworks and I don't like the sound of fireworks. So me and the dog get scared with fireworks. So me and the dog went into the garage together. Right. And I would have never gotten to those like beautiful human moments. If I had started with, tell me how bad war, war is like the beauty of it is in the mundane and then in the minutia. Right. And, and who wants to hear anybody else's opinion anyway? <laughs> We want stories, right? I do. I, I find. Yeah. So I consider my job. Oh, go ahead, George. Sorry, no, 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 find... no. Please, please, please finish your answer. Oh, I was just going to say, so our job is, my job is, uh, is in two parts. One, as a researcher on my own, I study the subject as much as I can. So with reentry, I read a, I read all the books that are on the Marine Corps Commandant's reading list for Canada for um, Marine Corps officers. They read while they're training to be an officer. Mm-hmm. Um, I read books on leadership. I read books on like the physiological experience of being in war. Read books on like the history of training war fighters. Read books on the therapeutic. Um, treatments of post-traumatic stress. Sure. Um, so all of the research is where I try to like be as scientific mm-hmm. um, and methodical as possible. And then the interviews themselves, I try to be as invisible as possible. That's and tr- try to. It's so tricky. It is tricky. And I try yeah. to be. Yeah, I try to let them lead the conversation. Yeah. Um, because if they know how I feel about anything, it's going to determine what they see. If they uh, if they can sense what I'm expecting or hoping for them to say, then they'll try to get second guess that. Right. I, I, I find the, the whole interview process, which I've been doing for almost 10 years now, is a remarkable learning experience. And I'm... I've had people who say, you need to talk more. You need to ask more questions. And, I've, and I, my explanation is, no, I want my I want my interviewees, I want my subjects to talk. Because if I give yeah. people a chance to talk, they will tell me things. I don't want to structure answers. Right, I, right. I, 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 I want the good stuff. I want the things that people talk about when they are allowed to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then and then there are a few techniques inside of that. That's like definitely the baseline. One of my favorite interviewers of all time is Dick Cavett. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine like his television show? Um, he had a 90 minute program with one guest. I know. Carol Burnett talked for 90 minutes uh-huh. you have to be a great listener to keep a conversation going for 90 minutes you do. um and i watch him a lot and he he doesn't talk but then when it looks like the 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 guest is running out of fuel he'll either play the fool and he'll say something just ridiculous that annoys the guest. And then the guest starts talking a lot because they get annoyed <laughs> by his goofiness. Yeah. Or he'll push back and suddenly he'll say something, you know, like that kind of takes the guest to task a little bit. 
And in that little tussle, the guest again re-enters the conversation with more uh, energy and, and passion. Mm-hmm. He's and then ways his, to stimulate the guests. As well. He's right. Or and then often he'll be he'll flirt, men and women alike. Mm-hmm. He'll flirt with the guests at the right moment, but those just come in when the air is starting to leak out of the room. Other than that, he ju- just steps back and listens. And he is listening, so fascinated by his guests that his guests keep talking because the listener clearly wants to hear. And, you know, they're, um, uh, quantum physics teaches us it's an observer-created reality. And so how you listen totally determines what you hear. It's funny because I've got down at the bottom of my list of things to, to ask you uh, a quote that somebody pitched me a while back that says, by observing something, you affect it. Yeah. And yeah, you do. Yeah. Science I, proves it. <laughs> yes, it's true. Even even if you're you know half a mile away looking through a lens or something like that. Or yeah. you and I are on the other ends of this Zoom meeting, and I'm affecting you. You're affecting me because what you says, what you say, is going to affect what I have to ask you, and what I have to ask you is going to affect what you choose to say. Right. Um, and I yeah, think and so me, I try to have I try to have questions in yeah. my back pocket. Like mm-hmm. I, I plan out a few questions to get things going, and then I'm totally ready to throw them away. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've thrown away so many questions because the interviews have gone this way and then that way. And then, oh, my gosh, all of a sudden, you know, we're out of time. And exactly. I think I personally strive for asking as few questions as possible and having as little impact on the interviewees' responses and choices of subject. I, you know, for, for me, it would be perfect if you sat here and just told me stories for the next, you know, hour and a half. That'd be great. Um, but it is an interactive thing, but I want to be as minimally in, I I hate this word, impactful, uh, as possible. Mm -hmm. So I can get the truth of what it is you have to offer. You wrote, you talked about, and this was part of the the Hellround article, something that struck me, amplifiers and takers. Yeah. And this goes through the technique of, you know, interviewing and, you know, anybody can crowbar an interview and just manipulate the, the questions so the interviewee has to stay within a particular box of, of acceptable answers, which I don't want to do. Or you can amplify. Well, it's, it's better if you talk about it because it was your quote. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about it a lot because... Um making plays about real people and real events is becoming more and more popular. Yeah. And I get called into panel discussions and mentorships or advising um, all around um, the ethics of what it means to take somebody's story and put it on stage. And I've been thinking a lot about those of us who make plays about a real person, we are either takers or we're amplifiers. Mm-hmm. Yes. A taker is somebody who I'm going to take your story and I'm going to put it in my play and I'm going to put it on stage. And um, 
I'll get royalties from the play and the theater will sell tickets to the play, but you, the, the, the thing that you got out of the transaction is you had somebody here and see you. And that's a big deal. Like I really believe putting somebody on stage says to that person or says to that community, we see you, we hear you, you matter. Yes. And that is awesome. That's amplification, mm-hmm. right? You are amplifying a life that may not be seen or heard or may feel like they don't matter. And so I've had many interviewees just be very happy with the process because their story was put on the stage and other people hear their experience and therefore their experience is validated and celebrated. So that's amplification. Isn't it nice? So I've been thinking about like if, what's that? I was gonna, isn't it nice to be paid attention to, to have other people? Yeah, to be validated. Things? Yes, yeah. Right, right. Because, you know, for, you know, for those Marines coming back from deployment, our, our, um, our military was, is, was made up at the time of like less than 1% of the general population of the country. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we say, oh, I see you in uniform. Thank you for your service. But many of them were feeling like nobody is actually paying attention to what I'm doing. And so there was some appreciation for the effort to um, build a bridge between their experiences and civilians experience. But I've been thinking a lot. The reason that I'm starting to bifurcate uh, our identities between who's a taker and who's an amplifier. Am I a taker? And when am I a taker? Am I an amplifier? And when I am an amplifier, I feel really good about, the interviews with those combat um, veterans, I feel like there was an exchange there. When I listened to these individuals, they were able to tell me things that they couldn't tell their spouse, they couldn't tell their children, they couldn't tell their therapists, and they couldn't tell anybody in their chain of command. And so in a way, it was a healing process simply to have uh, a compassionate, non-judgmental listener, a non-stakeholder, just listen to their story. Yeah. Um, so I feel pretty good about then taking those stories and putting them in the play. And yeah, we made royalties. Nobody's getting rich off of writing plays or I'm not getting rich, but I am paying my mortgage. And so I felt pretty good about the ethics That's of that. That's not bad off of playwriting. Wow, I, mean, yeah. I can't pay my light bill off. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, for... Uh, so in that in in that circumstance with reentry, I was both a taker and an amplifier, and I right. felt pretty good about the ethics of that. The story about King Records, in particular, right. telling the story of the drummer Philip Paul. Much of the play is about how these studio musicians were paid for the session, but never received royalties on the sale of the song. Okay. So they recorded a song that became a hit record that made the record label. And the owners of the copyright rich, but didn't make the artist rich. And so I'm taking this story and putting it on stage. Am I amplifying it? Yes. But I felt like the ethics of that were really dicey. And I didn't feel like I could just take without giving something back. Sure. And so sure. for that story, I actually 
uh, paid, I, sh- I, I gave uh, Mr. Paul a share of the royalties because that's what I felt was fair from in order for me to take, I had to give back. Right. Other times, if you're amplifying a community, I think it's important for us to think about other ways we can give back. So like with the, you know, if you're, if you're telling a story about a particular community, can you then become like a board member for a nonprofit that serves that community? Can you, if you're a theater commissioning a play about that community, can you offer to that community, open your doors and say, we'll give you our spaces rent free for your festival or for your fundraiser or for your meetings as a way of thanking you for giving us your stories. Um, So we have to like, we really have to think about this covenant we make with the people whose lives we take and put on stage. What are we taking and what are we giving? And if we're not amplifying and if that amplification is not enough for the community, we really have to think about what we're giving. We don't always have to pay because I think it gets, I think that also gets ethically dicey at times because it, it becomes a conflict of interest. There are so many ways of giving back. I mean, it, you've just mm-hmm. elucidated on a few and it doesn't need to be money because face it, you know, Americans trade money for just about everything. Yeah. But it could be, you know, the fact that somebody else, like you said, somebody else is going to hear your voice or we're going to exchange services because you did us a favor and, you know, allowed me to peer into your life and to create something around that because of it, from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. You know, yes, because I have taken something from you. I, I have amplified your experience. I have said this is who this person is, okay? But I've also taken from you and you have given me parts of your life to use for a project that I have done. So mm-hmm. yes, back and forth, the equitability of it, um, I would think would, would be a necessary thing other than, you know, you're not just a taker, you're probably a thief. And it has to go back and forth. Otherwise, how do we grow? Right. And sometimes you might be stealing to tell a bigger story as well. Right. You know, sometimes you might be stealing uh, details of an event because what you're trying to shed light on is a larger, a larger question or Mm -hmm. a larger issue that you feel it's important for all of us to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many issues with this. It's, I just find the whole interview process, the whole documentary play process, absolutely fascinating because then many of us write about people we have never have any contact with. We write about subjects that are foreign to us. We create things. We take bits and pieces of the lives that we've interacted with and we create other people and other characters and we're absolved of any blame as to how that affects any of the people we've based things on in the first place, whether they know it or not. Um, but to actually, yeah, who, who, when you say we're absolved of any blame, who is doing the absolving? Uh, ourselves, I think. Or we're trying to, we, we tell ourselves we're absolved. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, it's, it's a way because people ask me where I get my dialogue. People ask me where I get my, you know, my ideas. And 
I'm a playwright who will base a character upon somebody I've known. Not doesn't happen every single time. Doesn't, mm-hmm. happen, yeah. doesn't happen very often. But I'm taking part of that actual person, the way they speak, the way they carry themselves, their attitude, uh, the way they stand, the way they dress, something. Things I've right. heard about in conversation, because I tend to write, I used to write in coffee shops. And I would overhear the most bizarre conversations. And guess what? Some of that ended up in my work. Mm-hmm. I, I sure. stole that. I acknowledge it. I stole that. I, t- I took it. Uh, there was no remuneration for it. Um, but I think that's part of the creative process where you take your life experiences, no matter how random they are and how disparate, and you create something new out of them. Like I say, that's all very right. abstract. And, and then... Right. And all of that makes good sense. And then when you are doing something in which there's public acknowledgement that this is based on real people. So like if my play is being marketed as based on real people, based on real events, if it's being marketed as a documentary play, um, another part of the ethics of all of this, besides understanding what you're taking and what you're giving is I think it's really important for the audience to know what is real and what is fiction. And there are really fun, creative ways to build that in. There are so many cool ways, you know, um, uh, Black Watch, National Theater of Scotland's production of Black Watch, which was also about um, the Iraq war, um, did it so well because the fictional moments in that play were very, very physical. They were choreographed. They became poetic. And so the audience could tell when dialogue was from transcriptions and when stories were fictionalized because they became really theatrical. So there's like great ways to let the audience know, but um, but really important that the audience understands what you're passing as real and what you're passing as fiction. Sure. Yeah. And then there's the whole Werner Herzog approach, which is like, sometimes you have to lie to tell bigger truths. Uh, yeah. It's the, <laughs> sometimes the ethics are questionable. I, I'm, I'm not always a big fan of the end justifies the means. Um, I'd like to think that the, the means somehow are, equitable or fair or without victimization or yeah I think that and I also think that um, there's a lot of creativity to be found in how you bring art to meet verisimilitude yeah and it doesn't have to be one or the other no it can be it can be yeah there's there are so many shades of colors on this one um, we could be here forever I would like to shift over to where you were and what made you create, where you were in your life and where you decided to create American Records and why you chose that title. And where is where's the company now? Yeah, the company has always been wherever I am. Um, so it started in New Jersey when I lived in New Jersey, and now it's in Texas because I live in Texas. Um, where I was at was um, I started doing this work. I learned 
the first interview techniques I used, I learned from Steve Cusson, who founded The Civilians, who learned these techniques from Les Waters, who worked with Carol Churchill and Joint Stock Theater and used these techniques when um, Carol Churchill wrote um, Fenn. Mm-hmm. So Les shared it with Steve. Steve shared it with me. Um, I made my first play based on interviews and was like, bing, this huge light went off and I just enjoyed it immensely. And I started making plays uh, and then re-entry happened. And um, I thought at first that we were writing a play for a commission for Two River Theater. We were writing a play for that theater and hopefully it would go to other theaters. But what mm-hmm. happened was um, when we were running off Broadway, somebody from the military saw it and we had coffee and this person was um, uh, running the Navy Marine Corps Combat Operational Stress Control Unit. Wow. This person, this person was a psychologist and yeah. was, this was early in the war, but they were already knowing that this was going to be a 15-year war, 20-year, that we were going to be in this for a really long time. And so they were preparing for multiple deployments, even though our administration was saying, easy peasy, we're in and out, and this war is not going to last very long. Yeah, right. um, so, they, so they were starting to think about how to treat post-traumatic stress. And so he said, do you think you could get this play? I'm going to do a conference on, um, on psychological and moral injury in war. And I'd like to present this play. And this conference is going to be full of military leaders. If I make you the keynote address, can you get your company to come? And, you know, too dumb to know better. Wow. uh, I said, yes. And so I just created an Indiegogo campaign um, and raised $10,000 to pay for our flights. And we went and we did the play at this conference. And the first person to stand up after the conference was a four-star Marine Corps general who said, um, I really recognize uh, much of what's in this play ring so true with what we're dealing with right now. We could use this play as a sounding board, as a way in to talk about post-deployment stress. And long story short, Mm. I started getting calls from other military leaders and I started getting bookings to do the show on military bases and so very, very quickly, I had a play that many different theaters wanted to put in their season, and then a play that these military bases wanted to do as well. And so I applied for a NIFA grant, New England Foundation, um, New England Foundation for the Arts has these grants for touring projects. So I was getting bookings for the play, and I knew that I needed to work very, very quickly to create like a production company because I could have each organization produce it themselves in one-offs, but I felt like I wanted more control over the product. Um, And so I very, very quickly had to make my own company. And so, you know, made up late one night, I just started Googling like how to start a company. And I'd been part of the beginning of other companies. I was a member of Ambogart City Company in the first few years of that company's term. And I was an associate artist with a civilian in the first few years of that. So I had been around the beginning of making companies. And it takes a long time to file for a nonprofit status, all of that. But um, 
I found out that I could have a fiscal sponsor and, and if I had a fiscal sponsor fractured Atlas, I wouldn't have to, um, make a, a not-for-profit organization quite yet, I was able to very quickly get an LLC yeah. and um, make an S-Corp. And Making American Records, a corporation, gave me um, liability protection. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to produce as a corporation working under a fiscal sponsor. So as long as I spend every dollar I make every year that I make it, I can still be a corporation. American Records is a corporation, not a nonprofit, but I can still be a corporation working under a fiscal sponsorship. And so I can still, American Records can still get donations and it can also contract. And so for seven years, I was contracting with the Department of Defense doing the show on bases across the country and also in Europe performing for troops that had just returned from deployment. Um, and so this was like, I made this company in honestly three months time. Okay. And I was first thinking of calling it something pretentious, like the Institute for examination of life or something. (laughs) I don't remember what it was, was, but I was out to dinner with Maria Stryer, who runs Club Thumb, and Maria Goyanis, who now is the artistic director of Woolly Mammoth Theater in DC. Right. At that point, Maria was working at the public and she was also producing um, 13P. And we were having cocktails and I was talking about, I'm starting this company because Reentry is doing this stuff. And I said the name of the company, Maria Goyanis. That's a terrible name. That's just <laughs> awful. And, and she was like, what do you do? Just, okay, okay. And we, were, we started spitballing names. And she said, what, what do you do? And I what's your mission? And I said, uh, that's when I came up with to write plays um, that chronicle our time, plays mm-hmm. that serve as a bridge between people. And she was like, that's your mission. Tell me more about chronicling. What does that mean? And I said, like, I want to make a record of the events. Yeah. And she was like, okay, something records and what, and, and who? And I was like, I think that all of these are fundamentally American stories. And then it was just like, oh, American records. So I wouldn't have the name without Maria Goyanes. Cause I was, I've, I've been doing research on you for a little while now. And the name of the company struck me because I don't know, it just did. And the other night it was probably, it was late and I'm looking over my notes and I thought American records. Okay, so if I'm just extrapolating on this and just going freeform, these are records about American experiences. And what I wanted to ask you was, and I don't know if this is a good question or not, but if we're talking about American experiences, is there such a thing in in your world, the, the way you see things? Because we have so much diversity in race, environment, belief systems, gender, that sort of thing. Is there an American identity? <laughs> I am not equipped to answer that question. Okay, <laughs> I can't even. I don't even know. I I know. I think I, there I, I, are many yeah. American mythologies. It's a big question, and I think. I, I yeah, <laughs> and I. It's it's huge. It's a yeah. great question. It's a huge question. Um, 
And it's not but a I yes think, or no question either. This is this. Yeah. Is, <laughs> I think American records just sounded good. And yeah. also all of the stories did take place in this country. Um, and I do think like, and, and, and I've made so many plays about so many different subjects from football to what is it like to be a middle schooler to um, people who work in the death industry, like grave diggers and people who make coffins and mm -hmm. funeral directors to uh, an adaptation of Walden, but they're all in some way chronicling an American experience, okay. not the American experience. Sure. It's, it's like and I, yeah. It's like a 5,000-sided um, dice, you know? Exactly. And, um, you know, my, who I like to consider a spiritual great-grandfather is um, Studs Turkel. And working, you know, yeah. just felt so fundamentally American. That should be a required reading for every college or every high school, I think. Mm, yeah. yeah. KJ Sanchez, this has been, oh my gosh, this has been so much fun and time has flown by so fast. Um I, I honestly could sit here for another hour and a half doing this, but it's Friday afternoon and both of us need to get to the weekend. Um, yeah. but thank you so much for stopping by and sharing your work with us and sharing your ideas and, and sharing your experiences. Um, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad. It was my pleasure. Thanks a bunch. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes and Spotify. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or know of someone in the theater who'd make some seriously good chat, by all means, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening. And please, stay safe. Be careful, not only for yourself, but for those with whom we all share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you.